0: Thinking aloud. conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we'll be examining esoteric mysticism in Islamic Iran. With me is Jason Reza Giorgiani, who is the author of Prometheus and Atlas, World State of Emergency, Lovers of Sophia, Novel Folklore, and also Iranian Leviathan. Welcome, Jason.
1: Pleasure to be with you, Jeffrey.
0: You know, when we talk about esoteric mysticism, how does that? differ from exoteric mysticism. I mean, there is a sense in which every religion, even the most exoteric, has some mystical elements.
1: Well, I think it's a question of a tension between the facade of religious law and uh, the hidden or occult dimension of a religion that might um be seen as abrogating that religious law. So, in an Islamic context, there are two concepts, uh, Zahir, or the exoteric facade, and Batan, or the esoteric essence. And uh, so, when we're talking about esoteric mysticism, we're not talking about the kind of mysticism that's simply a very um, zealous degree of piety, uh, or kind of like uh, monastic saintly contemplation of the divine. We're talking about a kind of mysticism that purports that there's an hidden core of religion, which is an explicit conflict with the outward facade. And that should that botan, should that esoteric core be understood, it will actually nullify the zahir or the exoteric facade. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty extreme it is and it is characteristic of the entire esoteric uh, tradition in iran after the islamic conquest mm-hmm. well at at the time of the islamic
0: conquest uh, or shortly thereafter you had the division of islam into the uh, sunni and the shiite branches and uh, iran became i i gather in some sense a center
1: of shiite islam it ultimately did Although you have Sufi orders uh, whose um, f- esotericism is identical to what later becomes Shiite esotericism. When it comes to the, the more radical Sufi orders that are nominally Sunni, their theology doesn't differ all that much from the esoteric Shiite groups. What's important is that they are Iranian. Mm-hmm. And so Iranian Islam in general... Uh, tends to have this distinction between the esoteric and the exoteric.
0: Okay. Well, when the um, after the Islamic conquest, there was a, a caliphate uh, that was established. And initially, I guess it would be fair to say uh,
1: Iran was under Sunni Islamic rule. That's right. Um, until about uh, the 800s, when you had a rebel movement in the mountains of Azerbaijan, and this was led by initially a man named Javadan, and uh, Javadan brought uh, a, f- a fellow into his um, into his estate who was born with the name Hassan, and later adopts the name Babak. Uh, so this fellow was a Shiite, and um, he uh, he winds up working in Javadan's estate, becomes so close to Javadan that. Uh, Although Javadan has his own son, he makes Babak the inheritor of his estate. And after Javadan is killed in a, in a battle in the snowy mountains of Azerbaijan, Babak goes on to marry Javadan's widow. And, uh, this, this group of, um, neo-Mazdakites, really a, a group of people who are continuing the Mazdakite esoteric movement, they believe in a form of reincarnation where reincarnation and possession are not uh, really clearly distinguished from one another. Mm-hmm. And in fact, uh, you know, as you know from your own research and, and other discussions you've had with people in the field of parapsychology, uh, Ian Stevenson's research on reincarnation features many cases where it's not very clear what counts as possession versus what counts as reincarnation. So Javadan's widow claimed that after Javadan was killed, a uh, ballback was possessed by his spirit. And um, he raises this army that he calls sepah e could which could be understood as the Army of Javedan, or it could be understood as the Immortal Army, Javedan meaning immortal, or the Immortal Guard, the name of the old Achaemenid elite guard. And uh, Bobak uses this uh, Sepah-e-Javedan to wage a campaign of resistance against the caliphate in a large swath of territory that includes all of Iranian Azerbaijan and the region around the uh, Caspian Sea. He develops a, a close diplomatic rapport with the relatively independent principalities around the Caspian Sea. And... Uh, Wages a ferocious campaign of resistance against the um, the Arabian Caliphate. Mm-hmm. Now, uh,
0: the Mazdaites that we had discussed in a
1: previous interview was an esoteric
0: order that had been uh, severely persecuted by the uh,
1: previous uh, regime. Yes, this uh, resistance movement is called the Khurramdin. Um, or Khurram Dinan. And some people suggest that it's named after Mazdak's widow, that when the Mazdakites in the late Sassanian period were persecuted and their leadership was executed, that Mazdak's widow, a woman by the name Khurramiyah, took the movement underground. Mm-hmm. And the Choram Dinan... Javedan's movement, the movement that Babak inherits and, and, uh, becomes a military leader of are referred to as the Khorram Dinan or Khorramis. And so, uh, you know, Babak to this day in Iran is hailed as a, a hero of national resistance against foreign occupation and oppression. Mm-hmm. But I think what a lot of Iranians don't dwell on is the degree of ruthlessness that was brought to bear by this man. Uh, you know, Babak was fighting Arabs, but the majority of people who were uh, targeted by his resistance movement, by his by his um, partisan mercenary forces, were fellow Iranians. Babak really went after those Iranians, mostly among the peasant class, who, in his eyes, had committed treason by accepting the rule of the caliphate and reconciling themselves to being ruled from Baghdad, uh, so that they could have a life of peace and safety and security. And he went, he went, uh, after these people to, to such a, such an extent that he actually burned whole monasteries full of women and children to the ground to make a point to the men who were siding with the caliphate that even their families wouldn't be safe. Uh, if they were to continue to commit this kind of treason. And, you know, if you scale the, the number of um, deaths at the hands of Baubak's forces to today's population, the man was responsible for killing millions of people in the name of liberating Iran from the caliphate. I,
0: I see. And uh, from our previous discussions, I understand that he was a deep student of a, a form of Shia mysticism.
1: He he uh, and his uh, his comrades identified themselves as Shiites. So first of all, uh, in terms of, of uh, you know orienting us toward the the other movements that we're going to be talking about uh, as Iran develops a Shiite identity, it's very important to note that all of the orthodox Sunni heresy arcs of the time are identifying the Mazdakite. I mean, I'm sorry, the Khurram Dinan movement as Mazdakite, mm-hmm. and in fact. Uh, and um, Javedan's wife, uh, who marries Babak, when she uh, announces that Javedan's spirit has taken possession of Babak, um, I think it's at their wedding ceremony, mm-hmm. where, by the way, they, they, are, they carry out a wedding ceremony over the skin of a slaughtered bull which uh, says to me that there's a Mithraic element to this mm-hmm. ritual. They, they're drinking spiked wine um, and uh, using a, the skin of a slaughtered bull as a sofre or spread. And at that ceremony, she explicitly says that his purpose is to bring back the religion of Mazdak. So, the heresiarchs identified this as a Mazdakite movement, rightfully so, but these people were identifying themselves or presenting themselves as Shiites. Mm. So, right away, we see a connection between Shiaism and Mazdakism.
0: And uh, if if I'm correct, from our earlier discussions, you indicated a, a particular
1: form of Shiism that actually originated in Egypt. Well... Uh, it didn't originate in Egypt, but see what happens after uh, the period of Babak, after this um, this uh, campaign against the Baghdad Caliphate, is that the rule of the Caliphate uh, is so weakened and shattered, that you have semi-independent fiefdoms arising in various parts of Iran. Mm. And uh, this is the period of the so-called Golden Age of Islam, where a particular Iranian dynasty, the Buyids, who come from northern Iran around the Caspian Sea, they essentially turned the Baghdad Caliphate into their vassals. Okay, so the, the Baghdad Caliphate is turned into the vassals of the Buyids, and you have a tremendous flourishing of uh, arts and sciences in particular in mm-hmm. this period uh, where the majority of scientists and 90% or more of them are Iranians ethnically. Um, and so the Baghdad Caliphate is, is is severely weakened to the point where then when the Turks invade Iran, they uh, are inheriting the ruins of the Baghdad Caliphate. Mm-hmm. And they attempt to reimpose a very orthodox Sunni form of Islam. And it's at that point where the people who were following the type of Shiaism, nominal Shiaism, that Babak and his uh, comrades professed to be adherents of, they relocated their base of operations to Cairo mm. and founded a rival caliphate. Okay, Or you could call it an imamate, the Fatimid Caliphate of Cairo. And so this was a, a group of Shiites who founded the only caliphate ever run by Shiites, based in Cairo. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you could see that as a, a kind of continuation of the same type of Shiism that, um, that uh, the Khuram Dinan were adherents oh, of. Oh, okay.
0: Uh, I know it gets very confusing with all of these different elements. Uh, but now, Baalbek is also known
1: as Hassan. So, Babak, uh, you know, was born with the name Hassan, which is interesting because the next great leader of this movement is a man named Hassan, mm. uh, Hassan-e-Saba. And so, in this period where a rival caliphate, Shiite caliphate, is established in Cairo, a man by the name of hassan Asaba, who was a traditional Shiite, uh, goes and studies in Egypt for about a year and a half, with um an an esoteric uh, uh society that uh, are preserving some of these mazdakite beliefs and they're also inheritors of the alchemical tradition of Egypt so they're fusing you know um this ancient Iranian mystical tradition with Egyptian alchemy mm-hmm. and hermeticism mm-hmm. and after his training in Egypt Hassan al comes back to the same northern part of Iran that was the base of operations for Babak's movement uh, the the Albor's mountain region to the west of Tehran around the Caspian Sea, areas called Qazvin which is an Arabized form of Caspian, uh, the Caspians were an Iranian people living around the sea of that name in the Harkinian forest area And so, Hassan goes into the mountains of Ghazvin, and um, apparently with some hidden financial uh, source, with some, you know, occulted financial backers, he's able to purchase a fortress there called Alamut, the Eagle's Nest. And it becomes the nexus for a network of radical Shiites who break away from the Fatimid Caliphate in Cairo, with the view that... The the Fatimids have basically been corrupted by their power. Uh, they initially represented a a radical esoteric movement with with a very apocalyptic theology um, and a movement that, like like the uh, Mazdakites, was uh, a radically antinomian Gnostic movement, basically esotericists. And by governing a caliphate rather successfully, they have sort of. Um, uh, accommodated themselves to uh, more pragmatic uh, politicking. Mm-hmm. And so these radical Shiites led by Hassan al-Saba in, uh the, the uh, Alborz Mountains, they break away from the Fatimids and they establish uh, an order of radical Shiites that comes to be known as the Assassins. And some people think that this word assassin comes from hashishiyun, drugged on hashish, because some of their operatives were drugged on hashish. Uh, but I actually think it comes from uh, as-hassan in Persian, which mm-hmm. means from-hassan. Mm-hmm. sent In other words, sent by-hassan. And so, Hassan would send these operatives into uh, the court of the, the Saljul Caliphate, um, and uh, and other, uh, against other enemies, to infiltrate them for periods of, you know, 10 or 20 years before they would receive a, a secret signal to carry out an assassination. Mm-hmm. So they were deeply embedded double or triple agents mm-hmm. uh, known as assassins.
0: And so what we have here is a fusion of a, a very radical political organization with Uh, esoteric mysticism.
1: Yes, and uh, the motto of of the Order of Assassins was nothing is true, everything is permitted. And uh, this has uh, several layers of of meaning. I mean, first of all, no thing is true means that um, to ascribe any objective existence to anything in the world or even to the egos of particular individuals Mm. is to commit idolatry Mm. because the only truth is the unity of God. And everything, uh, is sort of pantheistically part of that unity of God. They call that Tohid. The, the the Tohid is the, the divine unity. So, um, in light of the Tohid, everything else is unreal. That's one layer of meaning there. But there's also a way in which this kind of connects back to Gautama Buddha's teaching in that nothing is true could be not just no thing is true, but the nothing is the truth. Mm. Shun, shunyata, as the Buddhists put it, is the truth. The fact that everything is shunya or voidness. Um, everything is voidness and the only reality is God. And when you understand that esoteric truth on a metaphysical and epistemological level, it leads to the socio-political, uh, understanding that everything is permitted. And, that doesn't mean that, uh, I mean, it's not a prescription for a license. It's not a just unqualified prescription for licentious behavior. It means something very specific. Hamichi's halalast. Everything is halal or kosher, to put it in Jewish terms, uh, means that there aren't, there aren't, um, uh, you know, Legitimate categories of, of justice and injustice or truth and falsity or good and evil that underlie uh, the political prescriptions of one or another sovereign authority. That, uh, you know, in, in socio-political life, it's not a question of what is good or what is evil or, um, you know, that laws are preventing you from committing injustice and that the sovereign is an enforcer of justice. Rather, the way that a state is governed is, is by prescribing certain things as permitted and other things as forbidden. In other words, when you understand the divine unity as the only reality, you also recognize that all political power is coercion and that all laws are ultimately based on arbitrary force. Mm-hmm. Which I suppose would be a very good ideology for assassins. It's a good ideology for 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 the ultimate freedom fighter, mm. uh, which I think these people were. They were they were free spirited people who were attempting to resist a highly centralized and uh, uh, hierarchical um, authority in terms of the caliphate, but. You know, in resisting that authority, they also created an extremely uh, authoritarian hierarchy of their own. So there's a, a there's a, a certain paradox in the Order of Assassins where Hassan Sabah was basically deified. Um, he and his successors were referred to as an imam, which in Shiite terminology is, uh, certainly in the the radical Shiite terminology that they're working with, is at least a successor to the Prophet, if not higher than the Prophet. Mm -hmm. Some of these radical Shiites put the line of Imams higher than the line of Prophets. And um, these Shiites in particular, the, the Order of Assassins, claimed that the first of the Imams wasn't Ali, it was Salman. Salman of Farsi, Salman the Persian. And they put him on a station higher even than Muhammad. So... Hassan was seen as a continuation of this line and he was almost deified and he was in command of a a, a very uh, uh hierarchical um uh political organization mm-hmm. with a network extending all throughout Iran uh based around these fortresses built in the mountains Mm -hmm. I suppose it's useful
0: to mention with regard to Zalman, the Persian, uh, that we have a previous interview, I can link to it, uh, in which you discuss his role in the formation of of Islam. And it it, it seems to be a very important and strategic role.
1: Yes, the assassins seem to be in possession of secret knowledge that Salman was the originator of Islam and really the initiator of Muhammad. Mm -hmm. Uh, So they were preserving the esoteric uh, truth of Islam. Uh, And so they claimed that, um, consistent with the Mazdaqite teaching, that religions have an exoteric facade and an esoteric core and that at the apocalypse, at the end of time, the esoteric core would be publicly revealed. So there would be no need for dissimulation anymore. There would be no need for tarriyah or dissimulation where those who are in possession of the esoteric truth have to pretend to be orthodox believers in a certain religious law. And, and in fact, the successor to uh, Hassan Asaba, Hassan II of Alamut, declared in 1164 that the apocalypse had come, and not only did he, did he abrogate the Sharia, did he nullify the Sharia, he declared the death penalty for anyone within territories under the control of the assassins who who continued to live by Sharia law. And, and I gather at this point they controlled a significant territory. Indeed they did, uh, going all the way from uh, northern Iran into Syria. And so... Uh, the other thing, though, that I want to point out, because we've emphasized the sort of militaristic dimension of this movement, is that they were great patrons of science and learning. And under Hassan Asaba, many libraries and laboratories were built into the fortress of Alamut. Um, later, when the Mongols come in and they destroy these fortresses, there are, uh, are reports, uh, on the part of the witnesses, um, who, who enter, finally, the public who enter Alamut Fortress after it's opened up by the Mongols, that this place was full of libraries and laboratories. And Hassan Asabah himself was not only an author of metaphysical or mystical treatises, he was an astronomer and a mathematician who, um, penned scientific mm-hmm. treatises as well. So. And th- studied alchemy. And yeah. studied alchemy. So he was quite mm-hmm. a polymath, uh, Hassan was.
0: Very interesting. But when the Mongols came in, uh, they took
1: the fortress apart. Yeah. And let me just uh, mention before we get to the Mongols that yeah. this polymath who was an astronomer and a mathematician was, was, uh, according to some stories, the schoolmate of Omar Khayyam mm. in his youth. And Omar Khayyam, the greatest astronomer, one of the great mathematicians of the so-called Islamic Golden Age, uh, was a, a schoolmate of Hassan al Mostly remembered, though, for his poetry. Which he wrote only at the very end of his life. Uh-huh. Uh, so, you know, Omar Khayyam had reconciled himself to the Seljuk Caliphate. There were actually three schoolmates, Hassan Sabah Omar Khayyam, and Nizam al-Mulk, the Iranian prime minister of the Turkic Seljuk mm-hmm. Caliphate. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, Nizam al-Mulk, the, the Iranian prime minister of the Saljuq Caliphate, was in the crosshairs of the Order of Assassins, and he was ultimately assassinated. Hmm. Uh, and so, you know, here you have these three guys. One of them is on the take from the caliphate. He's having his scientific research subsidized by Nizam al-Mulk. Nizam al-Mulk himself is the prime minister of the Saljuq Caliphate, and Hassan al-Sabah is targeting this caliphate, mm-hmm. and ultimately assassinates the prime minister. Be-
0: because the Order of Assassins, uh, opposed the Sunni caliphate, uh, which had now
1: been sort of taken over from the Arabs by the Turks. I think that like the the movement of Baubak before them, they believed that Islam had been misappropriated, that Islam had some esoteric purpose that had been perverted by the Arabian Caliphate. And they were trying to uh, basically get back onto the original program. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, it, judging by what the assassins were preaching, the original program had to do with uh, understanding the uh, this, the secret truth of the divine unity and uh, creating a form of, of society and a political order that reflected that. Um, So, and you know, they they also have certain beliefs, the assassins also have certain beliefs that you find in the Mazdakite movement and that from an uh, orthodox Islamic standpoint are totally heretical, for example, reincarnation.
0: What you, you have is, are these very, um, I'm going to call them cosmopolitan for lack of a better word, free thinkers. They're interested in, in the Mazdakite, uh, heresies, uh, also involved, if I remember correctly, free love and, uh, well, lack of private property and, uh, very, <laughs> I don't know, communal living, I guess, uh, opposed to the strictly authoritarian, Caliphates, whether they're Arab or Turk
1: or well, Mongol, yes. Well, you characterize them as cosmopolitan. I would, I would say, humanist. Mm-hmm. Uh, and another very important point about the the Order of Assassins is that they believed that the human being was um, the culmination of the cosmic creation and the the purpose for the sake of which the universe had been brought into being. And they they did have a A cosmopolitan perspective in the true sense of the word in that they, they literally claimed that the Ismaili or, or, you know, esoteric Shiite elite were an elite of the entire universe. This is the language they used. They said that the Ismailis are the elite of the universe and they uh, recognized All sources and traditions of wisdom, including, by the way, uh, Judaism. This is another period in Iran's history where the Jews enjoyed the protection of the Ismaili Shiites, Mm -hmm. uh, whose most extreme form are the Order of Assassins.
0: I I know you wanted to mention the three levels of humanity.
1: Yeah. So, you know, the elite uh, who consider themselves the elite of the universe, Mm -hmm. they're the people who... Um, can understand the esoteric truth even without the guidance of an imam. Mm. And then there are, are two lower rungs, uh, of, of, uh, humanity in terms of the evolution of consciousness or, or you know, the cultivation of, of wisdom. And the one underneath that are people who are inclined toward, um, seeking the truth they are capable of mystical insight but only under the guidance of an imam and within the context of an institutional structure and then finally uh, the bottom rung you have people who really need uh, orthodox religious law in order to be able to live their lives or they live their lives in a uh, in a way that's very rigorously Ruled by reason, and it's a very interesting equivalence, if if you ask me, to to put the need for religious dogmatism on a level with this kind of dogmatic rationalism. Mm -hmm. So yes, you had you had an ultra humanism at the core of this uh, movement, but at the same time a recognition of three different grades of human being, which is something you see going all the way back to the Pythagorean order, Mm -hmm. which of course you know Pythagoras studied for a dozen years with the Magi in the capital of the ancient Persian Empire.
0: So uh, yes, underneath all of this, uh, uh, I'm going to call it modern uh, for, because it was modern in its time. The these uh, Islamic forms of mysticism, but behind it all, we still see the earlier uh, uh, Mazdakite,
1: uh Manichaean heresies, and the Magi. Yes, yeah, so although a huge difference with the Manichaeans, in particular, is that the the Assassins. Um, and then their heirs, as we're going to see momentarily, really emphasize the idea of divine unity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, they're the furthest thing from, from metaphysical dualists mm-hmm. imaginable. So, uh, you know, we see this really clearly in the teaching of Molana Jalaluddin Rumi. As the Mongols come in to destroy the assassin fortresses, because you know, uh everyone along their way into central Iran has told these Mongol conquerors that their greatest enemy of the assassins, because they'll never submit to the Mongol authority. The Mongols make it their business to disassemble every assassin fortress stone by stone. Uh and as the Mongols are conquering Iran, this man by the name of Jalaluddin uh, Balchi who was born in in present-day Afghanistan, which until 150 years ago was eastern Iran, he and his family keep fleeing to the west to get away from the Mongols. And he eventually winds up in the Azerbaijan area where Babak's movement began. And um, he meets a, a man called Shams from Tabriz. And it's believed by the Ismailis today uh, by the same type of Shiites who formed the Order of Assassins. It's believed by the Ismailis today that Shams of Tabriz was a surviving assassin initiate mm-hmm. or assassin master. And uh, he initiates um a young Rumi who at that time had been a Sunni jurist who already had penned, you know, some some theological and, and juridical uh, works up to that time. And he kind of, you know loses his mind. Uh, he he um, he goes mad, as he puts it. Shams blows his mind by initiating him into certain esoteric mysteries. And um, you see in Rumi's uh, vast corpus of poetry, particularly the Masnavi, which is referred to as the Quran in the Persian language, uh, you see in the Masnavi of Rumi ideas that are identical with those of the Order of Assassins. Mm-hmm. And what are those ideas? So, there's the idea of the unity of God, the Tohid, or unity of God, being beyond all the seemingly apparent, uh, seemingly contradictory qualities in, in this world of phenomena. Mm-hmm. Meaning that everything that we tend to... uh attribute to evil or uh, consider polluted or impure or corrupt, is as much a part of God uh, as everything that we consider good and pure. And the unity of God, God's inner essence, is beyond all of these apparently contradictory qualities. Mm-hmm. That's one idea, that divine unity. Uh, then you have a a Transcendence of Metaphysical Dualism, where Rumi talks about uh, how the two worlds ought to be recognized as one, namely the spirit world and the material world. And he has this idea that, you know, saints, highly accomplished people, will have their physical bodies just transmuted into spirit, kind of like, you know, Obi-Wan Kenobi and the Jedi um, dematerializing, or rather uh, turning into specters, mm-hmm. uh, you know, um, having their, their physical bodies transmuted into specters. Then uh, you have also the idea that um, the human being is the summa of all creation and that everything else exists for the sake of man. Uh, all other beings have couldn't exist but for humanity, which is similar to German idealism. In other, in other words, mm. were there not a human consciousness to perceive things, there wouldn't be any things in the world. Um, and All the things that have come into being are sort of stage setting for the creation of man, and God requires the creation of man in order to express his own essence. It's something of a precursor to Renaissance humanism. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's it's ultra-humanistic and and anthropocentric. Uh, And yet so you see that idea in the Order of Assassins, and Rumi, exactly like the Assassins, doesn't take that... Uh, humanism to mean that all people are equal. He also, like the assassins, distinguishes three different grades of human being based on their inclination either toward materialism or toward enlightenment. Mm-hmm. And finally, um, with it having been understood that he's not preaching simple egalitarianism, Rumi does argue that, uh, or rather, he doesn't argue, but he expresses in his poetry that the only true religion is love, and that God's religion, namely the religion of love, lies beyond all other religions and cults. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, that the, the lovers of God, uh, are, are beyond, uh, you know, any form of, of dogmatism, religious dogmatism, which from an orthodox Islamic standpoint is extremely heretical. The idea that, first of all, you would take Islam and put it on a par with all other religions and sects, and then you would say that the true religion of God is none of these, that it, that it's a religion of love. Hmm. Uh, so that's, um, you know, uh, those are, five different ideas yeah. that you find in, in the poetry of Rumi that are all uh, fundamental principles of the Order of Assassins, which lends credence to the idea that he was initiated by Shams. Also relevant in that regard is his title, Molana. Rumi goes on to found a Sufi order uh, in uh, in eastern Anatolia called the Mevlevi Order. Mevlevi comes, it's a Turkish pronunciation of the word Molavi, uh, which comes from Molana. Molana, our master, isn't just a general honorific, it was the specific title of an initiate in the order of assassins. So to me, that's another piece of evidence in favor of the idea that although Rumi was nominally a Sunni jurist, he was secretly uh, an adherent of this radical form of Shiism. Mm -hmm.
0: And the Medlevi dervishes are still active today.
1: Yes, and you know this whirling uh, dance that the Sufis perform. Some people believe goes back to uh, a- an Iranian Sufi in what is today southern Iraq, um, Mansur al-Halaj, who famously proclaimed "Ana al-Haq," I am the Truth, and would revolve around himself. In other words, he would whirl. But mm-hmm. the idea being that he didn't need to go make a pilgrimage to the Kaaba in Mecca because he himself was the Kaaba. And you see this idea reemerge later in the history of uh, esoteric mysticism. And, and I
0: gather, though, that the Orthodox uh, Muslims persecuted him. They executed for that. him. They executed <laughs> yeah, him. Yeah, for that brutally belief. executed so him. So that's, that's considered very heretical. And yet, at the same time, Rumi, to my understanding, is regarded widely in the global Islamic community as maybe being second only to Muhammad as, as a religious figure.
1: Well, he's a very controversial figure, even today. To this day, but but the spread of the Persian language in an area from Delhi in India ultimately to Istanbul, uh, the, it having become the court language of the Mughals and of the Ottomans, uh, made it so that yeah, Rumi's poetry was disseminated over the entire core of the Islamic world, and um, I think Islam was understood through the lens of uh, Sufism or or uh, Iranian mysticism uh Much more so than it is today by a lot of orthodox Muslims
0: mm-hmm. so uh even though the Mongols had literally destroyed all of the assassin's fortresses in the teachings of rumi their their esoteric mysticism has in effect survived
1: it it has and um you know we also see this uh in the the uh poetry of hafez rumi and hafez are probably the two most revered poets in iran today mm-hmm. uh rumi more so by um spiritually inclined people and hafez more so by secular uh individuals mm-hmm. and uh, so you know when the mongols came into iran uh they they um, they were bringing the legacy of like Genghis Khan and and these you know these uh Siberian Central Asian warlords into Iran and these Siberians were very closely connected to the Turks so before the the Turks uh invaded Iran and then the Mongols invaded Iran the Turks and the Mongols had had a common history together in parts of Central Asia and Siberia and After the Mongol conquest of Iran, there was a Turk in Central Asia by the name of Teymour, they call him Tamerlane in the West, who attempts to synthesize the legacy of the Turks and the Mongols. And as a Turk, claims the uh, mantle of Genghis Khan and tries to establish uh, a vast empire um, in uh, in the name of uh, furthering Genghis Khan's uh, legacy. And this uh, Tamerlane gets all the way down to Shiraz where he, in fact, meets Hafez. And so, you know, um, ha- Hafez's life is coinciding with a period where you're seeing the final destruction of Iranian culture by people who are uh, sort of, uh, you know, waving the banner of, of the Mongol Khanate. Uh, uh, Tamerlane is regarded as one of the most brutal conquerors in all of history. He created pillars of, of decapitated heads in the various Iranian cities that he conquered. And and so it's, it's really fascinating to see this uh, really subtle humanistic um, religion of love being preached by Rumi and then by Hafez in the midst of all of this brutality. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a very interesting uh, enigma or paradox of history to see such a um, humanistic, uh, poetic expression emerge from out of such violence and brutality. How do you account for that? Uh, I think, you know, it was the last resistance of the Iranian spirit against um Islamic orthodoxy and against tribal barbarism, which had had joined hands to oppress the country. And the destruction of the assassins meant the end of any organized political resistance for some time. Mm-hmm. But then we had resistance on the level of the individual free spirit. And Hafez is really, you know, he really epitomizes that human type. Mm-hmm. So... Now, the Mongols
0: uh, assumed the Shiite religion, did they?
1: No, they assumed Sunni. The, they assumed Sunni the, Islam. The more authoritarian, the most authoritarian, legalistic, legalistic Orthodox form of Islam. Because, the same as the Turks had done. Exactly, and uh-huh. which made it so easy for Tamerlane to synthesize these two uh, cultures, uh, because they, the Mongols recognized in that form of Islam an excellent instrument for totalitarian control hmm. over this vast empire that they were building. I I see. So. Uh, but okay, so at that point, the resistance to this kind of tyranny becomes something conducted on the level of the individual free spirit, and mm-hmm. you know, Hafez really epitomizes that. In in Hafez's poetry, you see uh, the the type of the the brigand, the kind of uh, scandalous um, uh, rebel, a social rebel, raised to the status of a, of a mystical initiate and a a kind of seer. So, you know, in the city of Shiraz at the time of Hafez, there was a whole social class who were called Rend, which is where we get in English the word Rand, Rand or Randy. Mm -hmm. And these people were uh, like mafioso types who lived by a code of honor. So there was a certain chivalrous quality to them too. And uh, they were known as very scandalous people. They're mm-hmm. outrageous or scandalous people who provided protection to wine taverns, brothels, casinos, opium dens, all of the institutions that were prohibited by Orthodox Islam on a kind of neighborhood-by-neighborhood neighborhood basis. They provided protection for these institutions and for the people who would frequent them. And, uh, you know, they're seen as as uh, scoundrels and brigands and rogues. Mm-hmm. Well, Hafiz takes this Rand figure, this Rand type, and he synthesizes it with another type known as the Galandar, who is a, who is a person who's ostracized from society, uh, on account of his unconventional behavior, but as a mystic. This is a, a kind of, uh, mystic who, uh, f- f- sort of, uh, uh, rejects the conventions of society and who it's believed is singled out by God, uh, so that God can exclusively and jealously enjoy the love of this mystic. God, uh, brings this kalandar to act in a socially unconventional fashion to the point where he's, he's ostracized and subjected to blame or malamat, uh, so that, uh, the, the mystic will be drawn closer to God. Mm-hmm and uh it's made the, the point is made that although such a person is outwardly blameworthy the person uh is inwardly uh uh solemn or of a not just a good character but a saintly person mm-hmm. so someone who has outwardly scandalous outrageous behavior in defiance of social convention but inwardly is really a saintly person Hafiz takes this type of the ghalan mystic and he fuses it with the rent to create a type called renda galandar in his poetry, uh, and he makes the, the the further perverse move from from any orthodox standpoint of claiming that this is the perfect human being. In in uh, you know the Islamic tradition, there is this idea of ensan-e-ka'mel, or the most complete or whole human being, and Hafez claims that it's the renda galandar who is the ensan-e-ka'mel, the most perfect human being. Now, unlike Rumi, Hafez
0: did not found a Sufi order, and yet he had a vast influence.
1: He did. Uh, He didn't found a Sufi order. This type of personality, I think, would never um, have have set himself up as the leader of any institution. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, he was very well versed in theology. What's really uh, bizarre about Hafez and what really has to make you wonder what's going on with the whole tradition of Islamic esotericism is that the same man who's raising the type of the the rent uh, up to, to you know, the, the image of the perfect mystic, um, the same man who advocates drunkenness as a way to come closer to God, to lose your ego, uh, and to um, to transcend the concerns of this world, the same man who advocates drunkenness throughout his poetry and who uh, idolizes feminine beauty to the point where he depicts women as incarnations of God, also spent his days studying, uh, uh, his his nights rather, studying the Quran and ultimately teaching it. Mm-hmm. Hafez means someone who's memorized the Quran. And his, his actual name was Muhammad, uh, Sh- uh, Muhammad, um, uh Muhammad, uh, Muhammad Shirazi. And, um, uh, Khaja Muhammad Shamsuddin Shirazi. And he was given the name Hafez because he had memorized not just the Quran, but 14 different lections of the Quran. So in, in, uh, the earliest copies of the Quran, which were written in Kufic, long vowels are not expressed. And therefore, there's a textual ambiguity uh, as to whether a certain word uh, ought to be read as containing long vowels or not. And this can lead to 14 different uh, specific interpretations of what the Qur'an says. Hafez had memorized the Qur'an and taught it, according to some, in all 14 different of his lections. And throughout uh, his poetry, he repeatedly draws on imagery from the Qur'an, uh, praises the Qur'an, and, uh, uses, you know, the stories of various Abrahamic prophets like Noah, Moses, uh, Joseph is, is fairly popular, and especially Jesus. Uh, he, he uses these prophetic figures throughout his poetry. So you have on the one hand a man who is drowned in the Quran, uh, and on the other hand is, uh, drowned in the wine bottle. Uh, and who's who's surrounded by women, and who's advocating a kind of um, uh, libertine idols, idolization of feminine beauty as a as a contemplation of the divine. Mm-hmm. And all of this is taking place under Mongol rule. Under Mongol rule, and in fact, at one point there was a kind of uh, Orthodox uh, uh, local governor um, who took over Shiraz. And, uh, Hafez, uh, writes against him in his poetry, he calls him the cop or the policeman and praises the, the, the end of this, uh, this policeman's rule. So Hafez was a very explicit cr- critic of any kind of Islamic orthodoxy and a man who, who idealized the people who were protecting the wine taverns and the brothels and casinos and so forth, uh, but who at the same time, um, wrote poetry that is inconceivable but for the existence of the Qur'an. Hafez's poetry is as inconceivable without the Qur'an as its background as uh, Dante's uh, Divine Comedy is without the Bible. Mm
0: -hmm. So, uh, what's amazing to me is that the state didn't eliminate him.
1: Yeah, and you know, uh, he he showed a lot of backbone in his conversation with Tamerlane uh, supposedly. The people who witnessed that were impressed by how uh, unintimidated Hafez was by Tamerlane.
0: I understand that some of the Sufi orders have taken up Hafez's uh, poetry as sort of the basis for for their esoteric mysticism.
1: Yes. Uh, in particular, the founder of the Nimatollahi Sufi order, Shah Nimatollah Vali, was a contemporary of Hafez. He was a young man when uh, Hafez was in his old age. And uh, Hafez was aware of him and actually didn't think very much of of, of him Um, because, uh, you know, in Hafez's time, uh, a lot of the Sufis were engaged in charlatanry, kind of like the Indian fakirs who would hang around on, you know, street corners and and claim to be uh, saints and sages and really just be basically bumming on street corners. Mm -hmm. So, and, And also, Hafez's real problem with the Sufis is that a lot of them were ascetic and Hafez thought that that was uh, conceited, that it was a still asceticism or Zuhd was a form of egotism. Mm. And and really, to come closer to God, one had to lose oneself in drunkenness and, uh, you know, ecstatic uh, contemplation of beauty. And, you know, you really get a sense in Hafez that the, er, that the erotic and the sacred are not at all distinct from each other. That uh, for Hafez, eros and agape are one. At any rate... Uh, although Hafez took a dim view of the founder of the Nimatullahi order, his successor, Shah Nimatulla Vali's successor, Shah Qasem Anvar of the Nimatullahi order, canonized Hafez, canonized Hafez's poetry as part of the, um, the, the writings of the Nimatullahi order and carry, uh, undertook exegesis, deep mm-hmm. exegesis of, of Hafez's writings. So Hafez was uh, assimilated into, uh, the, the canon of various Sufi orders, and the next m- most important uh sufi uh or or esoteric Shiite movement that we see rise up in iranian history comes from out of one of these Sufi orders uh within about um within about fifty to a hundred years of Hafez's lifetime and, and what are the dates for hafez uh he's he's around thirteen fifty mm-hmm. okay he's around thirteen fifty and uh In the late 1400s, in the very late 1400s, you have the rise to prominence of the Safaviyya Sufi order, uh, which eventually winds up being led by a young man named Ismail, who's 16 years old, when he takes over leadership of the Safaviyya Sufi order in the Caucasus mountains uh, near the coast of the Caspian Mm -hmm. Sea. Mm -hmm. And this is a, a Shiite Sufi order. Now, interestingly, originally these people were, were Sunnis, they were Sunni Sufis, but at some point they start identifying themselves as Shia, which just goes to underline the fact that on the esoteric level, there's not a great deal of difference between uh, esoteric or Sufi uh, Sunnism mm-hmm. Um, and esoteric Shiaism. Mm-hmm. What really matters is the distinction between esoteric Iranian Islam mm-hmm. and then, uh, exoteric or legalistic Arab Islam.
0: Well, I, it seems to me, just parenthetically, that, uh, when it comes to a- any religion, uh, Muslim, Hindu, Jewish, Christian, and so on, so forth, the esoteric, uh, individuals uh, of that faith have more in common with each, each other than they do with the uh, more orthodox members of their own religious community.
1: And this was a point explicitly made by the assassins when they said that, you know, we, we respect, uh, you know, all religions and all sources of wisdom. hmm uh, So, yeah, they recognized that unity of the esoteric across the exoteric division between various religious uh, belief systems. Mm-hmm. So the Safaviyya Sufi order rises up in the late 1400s, um, and it's, it's led by this 16-year-old, Ismail, who hides out for a while in the Hyrcanian forest, uh, the, the forest around the Caspian Sea, which were stronghold of Mazdakites. And, you know, to this day in that part of Iran around Rasht, uh, you have, you have all kinds of jokes about, you know, Rashti women, uh, cuckolding their husbands, and, you know, these, these, uh, uh, women around the Caspian, uh, in that, that forested area who basically go and sleep with whoever they want, and the, the agri- agrarian society of that area is very socialistic, mm-hmm. and so there is a survival even to this day of what appear to be Mazdakite beliefs in that area. So one can only imagine that at the time around 1500, where Shah Ismail was hiding out in those forests, he would have been introduced to uh, another source of Mazdakite beliefs besides what had been preserved in his own Sufi order. And, you know, uh, his Sufi order, it's important to point out, uh, on an ethnic level were, were Kurds. Shah Ismail Safavid was an ethnic Kurd. So he comes from that branch of the Iranian family, the, the mm-hmm. Kurdish branch. And... A lot of the beliefs that you see expressed in Shah Ismail's extensive corpus of poetry mm. are very similar to the beliefs of a sect of Kurdish mystics that survives to this day in Iran called the Ahl Haq, Ahl Haq or People of Truth. Mm. They're also known as the Yarasan in the uh, uh, mountains of Iranian Kurdistan. And they are nominally Shiites. Mm. And uh you'll see that the the Ahl Haq uh, believe, for example, in reincarnation. And reincarnation is an idea that you see in the poetry of Shah Ismail. Shah Ismail uh, claims to uh, be the reincarnation of a number of past historical figures. And interestingly, he also identifies himself with figures that are conventionally conceived of as evil in Iranian history. Uh, he'll say... I am Jamshid and I am Zahak. Jamshid being the great venerated uh primordial Iranian king, and Zahak being the most demonized ruler in the history of Iran. In the Iranian national epic, Shah Nameh, he's depicted as a demon king. Mm. And um so he'll say, you know, I am I am Jamshid and I am Zahak. and he'll say, I am uh I am Rustam, the Ulysses figure of the Iranian national epic. And I am Alexander. And Alexander was the great destroyer of the, you know, uh, nominally Zoroastrian, you know, ancient Persian Empire. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, Shah Ismail is making a point of uh, having attained a state of wisdom beyond the distinction between good and evil. And uh, you, you also see his uh, professing to have attained this level of enlightenment in statements like, I am the truth of Anna al-Haq, and I am beyond the Kaaba of the hypocrites. So, it seems he's referencing here Mansur al-Halaj, who proclaimed, I am the truth. In other words, I am God, mm-hmm. uh, and who revolved around himself. Mm-hmm. In other words, when he said, when Shah Ismail says, I am beyond, I am, uh, you know, beyond the Kaaba of the hypocrites, he is saying that, uh, I don't, uh, I don't have to uh, circumnavigate the stone at Mecca. I have within my own soul the Kaaba.
0: So he's identifying himself with the whirling dervishes.
1: Yes, or the or the whirling ceremony of the dervishes expresses the same truth that is expressed in Shah Ismail's poetry okay. repeatedly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one point that's important to make, you know, we call him Shah Ismail. He did become the the founding Shah, or not just king but emperor Shahanshah, of. Uh, an Iranian dynasty, but he was called Shah Esmail before he became a king. As in the case of Shah Nematollah Vali, the founder of the Nematollahi Sufi order, the Sufis had a tendency to, uh, or the esoteric Shiites also had a tendency to call their leaders Shah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the heads of the Safaviyya Sufi order were known as Shah, including Ismail who then takes this Sufi order and turns it into a monarchical dynasty, the Safavid dynasty, with its capital being established in Tabriz in 1500. And Ismail uh, uses these Turkic mercenaries, known as ghazalbash or redheads, uh, to, to be able to set up the base of operations for his dynasty, to start to unify Iran around Tabriz as its capital. And these Turks that he's, he's uh, unifying, uh, that he's using to unify Iran, are Shiites, mm-hmm. even though the Ottoman Turks to his west are Sunnis, and the Uzbek Turks to his east are also Sunnis. So, Esmail, an Iranian, a Kurd, has an aspiration to carve out a cohesive Iranian state, mm-hmm. And, uh you know, although the, the Buyid dynasty had sort of turned the Arabian caliphate into its vassal for a period of time, in a strict sense, there had been no Iranian state for a period of 800 years prior to this. So from the, the fall of the, you know, uh, Sassanids in 651 AD all the way to 1500, When Ismail is declaring the, the Safavid dynasty with its capital in Tabriz, there hadn't been a distinct Iranian state. In other words, they were nominally under the rule of of the caliphate of various Sunni uh, Muslims. Yes. And there were, there were semi-autonomous fiefdoms and then ultimately this very powerful Buyid fiefdom that was Shiite. But none of them came to the point of uh, recapturing all of Iranian territory and declaring independence from the Mm -hmm. caliphate and rejecting the caliphate idea as Mm -hmm. such. Well, Esmail is the first person to do this. Um, and so he's viewed in some ways as the founder of, of the modern Iranian state mm-hmm. in 1500. Yeah. Because, uh, from that time on, you know, we have had a, a Shiite Iranian state in one form or another. And that institutionalization of Shiism was key to Safavid's, uh, recreation of a, of a cohesive Iranian state. Because he looked at these Turks that were in his, in his, uh, you know, a uh, mercenary guard, and he saw that they were not ethnically Iranian, but they were Shiite. And a lot of ethnic Iranians were Shiites. But uh, the Turks to the west and to the east of him were Sunnis. So the best way to create a cohesive Iranian identity at that time was not to emphasize being ethnically Iranian, because it would exclude the tribal confederation of Turks that helped bring him to power in the first place, and whose military force he... Was reliant upon, um, so emphasizing Iranian ethnic identity would exclude them, uh, and uh, and it would include a number of Iranian Sunnis mm-hmm. who were still living in territories governed either by the uh, the um, the Turks, the Ottoman Turks to the west, or by the Uzbek Turks to the east. So the best way to just uh, separate Iran from the broader ocean of the Sunni Islamic world was to declare Shiaism as the ideological backbone of his state, which he did. Mm-hmm. And he engaged on a campaign of uh, you know conquering various parts of reconquering various parts of Iran, uh, and ultimately establishes his capital at Esfahan where we see a tremendous flourishing of art, and particularly architecture. You know, uh, Safavid architecture is probably the peak of of Iranian architecture um, <clears throat> in, in the entire history of Iran. And uh, there are magnificent paintings produced, including the greatest edition of the Shah Naameh, commissioned by Ismail himself, and finished under the reign of his successor Tahmasb, it's called the Tah shahnameh because his successor finished it. But Shah Ismail himself commissioned it. And it has miniature paintings in it so fine. They're painted with cat's hair. And you have to today look through a magnifying glass to be able to see images within images, like mm-hmm. faces inside rocks and so on and so forth. It's a masterpiece of art that he himself commissioned because of his great love for the Iranian national epic and his belief that although... You know, as a as a stratagem he had to institutionalize Shiism. Uh he's really aiming as an Iranian nationalist to recreate a political Iran. And so the Shah becomes canonical for the Safavid dynasty um and becomes key to the reconstitution of Iran. Esmail names all of his children after heroes in the Shah Nameh. And although his his uh, mercenaries are Turkic speakers, he recites the Shah Nameh for them to to inspire them to go into battle. And he translates it into Turkish mm-hmm. so that they can understand it. So he set up a, an empire, a new dynasty, a
0: Shiite dynasty, but the man himself from your descriptions as a poet, is a, a, a Sufi, a very charismatic person who assumes leadership of a... Let me,
1: let me just give you an example of how charismatic the man is, okay? Yeah. And what kind of authority this man wielded. Very similar to Hassan Sabah, the leader of the Order of Assassins. Shah Ismail, at one point, when he's, he's going after the, the Uzbeks, he, he fails to capture a certain Uzbek leader, and he grabs two of his lieutenants instead, out of frustration, and he brings them back to Esfahan, the, the Safavid capital. And he has these men put on skewers and turned into rotisserie kebabs. Oh. And his... uh comrades, his inner circle, including the leaders of the mercenary armies, are seated around the table. And he basically says to them, you know, don't let your kebab get cold now. Eat the kebab. And so they prove their loyalty to Ismail by devouring the flesh of these captured Uzbeks. So here is a man who is a deep mystic. His poetry is full of insights on the level of Rumi. He is such a patron of the arts that he has this magnificent, illustrated Shah Nahmed commissioned, and yet he's capable to exercise that degree of ruthless leadership, like the, the leader of the Order of Assassins. And, you know, however much one might, you know, uh, be disturbed by this or want to criticize it, any Iranian nationalist knows that uh, the Iranian people owe a debt of gratitude to this man for being the first person who was able to establish an Iranian state after a hiatus of 800 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he was a, basically more of a mystic than a you know, legalistic ruler. Absolutely. And so, unfortunately, what wound up happening is once he institutionalized Shiism. He had to rely upon the local mullahs, the local clergymen uh, in, in various towns and cities across Iran mm-hmm. to coordinate with the Safavid dynasty in order to be able to promulgate Shiism as the official religion of the state. And while his version of Shiism was the assassin type of Shiism or the Shiism of Babak Khurramdin, which is ultimately, in the time of Babak, being described as a kind of neo-Mazdakite religion— While his Shi'ism was of that esoteric nature, that wasn't the case with the legalistic molas that he had to rely upon in order to create the Safavid state apparatus. And so, for example, you've got these mullahs collecting the zakat, the, you know, Islamic mandatory charitable contribution from people, the tithe, as it were. You've got these mullahs collecting the tithes from people before they're passing it on to the state, you know, and uh, the, the royal treasury. And so the mullahs are able to amass a great amount of wealth over time. And while initially they're very deferential to the Safavid uh, monarchy for becoming their patrons and for institutionalizing what had been a a minority religion. Over time, they start to uh, put a a chokehold around the Safavid monarchy. They tighten around the Safavid monarchy like a boa constrictor. And by about 1700, you start to see the legalistic mullahs determining Safavid state policy. And we see the kind of legalistic Shiite state take shape that exists today in the form of the Islamic Republic of Iran.
0: What we see in Iran is a kind of a clash, as you're describing it, between Rumi and Hafez, who are arguing for the religion of love as the highest religion. And then you have the Turks and the Mongols and the Arabs uh, coming in uh, w- with unspeakable cruelty, and somehow, uh, in in the form of uh, Shah Ismail, these two
1: threads—the cruelty and the religion of love—get uh, fused. You could you could say it that way. I mean, look, that degree of authoritarianism exercised by Shah Ismail was evidently necessary yes. in order to finally put Iran back on its own two feet. I mean, uh, Babak had failed to do so. The assassins were on the point of doing so. Okay. Uh, So Babak failed because the Turks came in, Mm -hmm. um, you know, and they they destroyed that phase of the movement. And then the assassins were on the verge of defeating the Turkic uh, Seljuk Caliphate when the Mongols come in and destroy. So, you know, failed attempt after failed attempt ultimately drives home, you know, the the necessity of a use of a comparable degree of force and authoritarianism Mm -hmm. in order to create a state that at heart is based on these esoteric insights that we see in people like Rumi and Hafez. So I think the the takeaway here is that in the entire period from the Islamic conquest of Iran, uh, from the early revolts against the caliphate, all the way across a span of 800 years to the reestablishment of the first Iranian state, um, you had this esoteric mysticism at the core of every nationalistic movement that sought to uh, redefine an Iranian identity uh, on, a, on a social and political level. And insofar as Shah Ismail is the founder of uh, the modern Iranian Shiite state, which you know changed dynasties over a, a number of centuries, but which in its basic contours still exists today. The uh, esoteric insights of people like uh, you know Rumi and 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 Hafez and Shah Ismail himself are uh, the uh, sine qua non. They're the that without which this could not have happened. Mm-hmm. What's the status of
0: Sufis today in Iran?
1: Uh, the Islamic Republic is concerned about the degree of devotion that Sufi followers give the leaders of their orders, and so the Sufi orders are viewed with a great deal of suspicion by the you know federal government by, by i 'm sorry the central government of Iran uh, but one thing that happened in the late Safavid period is that uh, as the the legalistic clergy began to take power. Um, this esoteric tradition migrated into the theological seminaries, into the madrasas. So you started to have, instead of, uh, Sufism, you started to have a Shiite esotericism, Erfane Shi'i, a Shiite gnosis taught inside of the Shiite theological seminaries themselves. And that continues to be the case in the Islamic Republic of Iran. In fact, the founder, uh, you know, of the Islamic Republic, Ayatollah Khomeini, was known in his seminary days as someone with a proclivity toward the study of erfan or Shiite gnosis and philosophy. Uh, even though you know he apparently created a legalistic uh, th- uh, theocracy, in terms of his personal inclination, he was a a gnostic and a student of philosophy, and his favorite poet. Who he could quote at length from memory was Hafez. Mm. And I understand the, you know, the current supreme leader, Khamenei, uh, was also a philosopher and poet. I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, I certainly can't say I've spent any time reading his poetry. Uh, I see. But yeah. I think that it's important to recognize that this esoteric mysticism is still alive and well underground in Iran. Uh, and I think. Uh, it It might be legitimate to say that it 's still the pith or hidden core of this exoteric facade that we see in terms of uh, you know the theological regime that 's in place today. Uh, this uh, regime in Iran should remember that it ultimately owes its existence. To the man who said, I am the truth of Ana al-Haq. I am beyond the Kaaba of the hypocrites.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, Jason Reza Giorgiani, once again, this has been a, a whirlwind tour. We've <laughs> gone through about 800 years of, of history. It's, it's very complex. Some of it is inspirational. Some of it is terrifying. Uh, all of it is educational. Thank, thank you, Th- Jeffrey. Thank you for
1: the opportunity to tell this story.
0: Thank you for being with me, Jason. And thank you for being with us.